All right, so as we, uh, yeah, as we approach Christmas, as we're thinking about uh, Christ's first advent, we're thinking about his birth, his perfect life, his suffering and death in our place, and his resurrection and ascension, then it seemed like a good, good topic to look at when he came. And, and really, um, I was doing the, the kids' Christmas party, and we looked at Luke 2. So I want to actually turn there. We looked at this passage from Luke 2. And it's often one that people kind of stop before they get to this part. They read about the shepherds and then they kind of stop usually at Luke 2.21. Um, but I want to look at 22 and on because we see that there was great anticipation of, of the Messiah coming. There was great anticipation when Jesus came. And that anticipation was there because people knew what the Old Testament said. And they knew that the Messiah was coming, and they knew things about him. And we're going to be looking at what those things are. Uh, but let's just look at two people, Simeon and Anna here in Luke 2, starting in verse 22. It says, When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, this is baby Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So it says in this passage that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And who was this consolation? Well, it says in the next verse that the Holy Spirit had revealed to Simeon that he would see the Lord's Christ before dying. And he recognizes, and he's very excited to see at this point, that that Christ is here, right? That it is Jesus. He recognizes Jesus as the Christ. He calls him in verse 30, your salvation, the salvation coming from the Lord. And in verse 32, he calls him a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And this is a reference to Isaiah 42, 6, uh, which talks about a light for the nation. So he's, he's making the connection to uh, an Old Testament scripture, Isaiah 42. Simeon has been waiting for the Christ. He's been waiting for the Savior. He's been waiting for the Lord's chosen servant that Isaiah writes about. He's been waiting for this consolation of Israel, this promised one, because he knows that he has been promised. He knows what the Old Testament says. And then after that, another person is there. We read, starting in verse 36... Another person sees Jesus. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. 
She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So we see here that Anna knew who Jesus was, and she was excitedly speaking to people who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. And so we see that she knew that Jesus was the one who had been promised to redeem Israel. That's why she was so excited. The Redeemer was here, and she recognized that. When the Jewish religious leaders put Jesus on trial to murder him, they knew that he was claiming to be the Christ. If you turn to Matthew 26, 63 to 68, they ask him that question. So they were aware that he was saying he was the Christ. Matthew 26, 63 says, But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven, Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? So they rejected him, but they were aware of a Christ who was to come. Right? They knew there was a Christ who was supposed to come. And they knew that he claimed to be that Christ. So again, there was an anticipation of those who knew God's word that there was a Christ who would come. right? An anticipation from the Old Testament. On the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, when the risen Christ finds two of his apostles walking down the road and he comes to them and he doesn't reveal who he is at the moment, he ends up talking to them and then they're, they're going on and they say in verse 21, Luke 24, 21, They're talking about Jesus being killed, and they don't realize that that's who they're speaking to, that he's raised right next to them, talking to them. But they're saying, say in 21, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So just like Anna was talking to these people who were waiting for Israel to be redeemed, they were hoping, they had that same hope and expectation that maybe Jesus was the one who would redeem Israel. And then then right before Jesus ascends... Acts 1, six. his disciples asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Showing that they're anticipating a restoration of the kingdom of Israel. And they're asking, are you going to do this? Because they, they understood that the Christ would do this. But it turns out that their timing wasn't right, right? That's the issue. Yes, he is going to redeem. He is going to restore Israel And that's to come, that's his second coming, not the first. So a lot of people had hoped that he was going to come and conquer Rome and and free Israel from Rome, right? And restore them and, and rule, but that was not what he was coming to do on his first coming. Uh, And then Jesus said in John 5, 39, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. So he said the, the Old Testament scriptures bear witness about him. And then, as we mentioned on the road to Emmaus, eventually it says that he showed uh, those, those apostles 
where the Old Testament told about him. Luke 24, 27 says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he went through and showed them. Now that doesn't say that all of the Old Testament everywhere is specifically talking about Jesus. Some people, some people go too far and they try to make every single verse symbolizing something about Jesus. But he's telling them and showing them where, right, where it's about him. And of course, the big picture is it is about him. It's talking about his coming, right? It doesn't mean every single passage is about him. But overall, the book is talking about him coming. The Old Testament is, is, is talking about Christ coming. So that he goes through what the Old Testament reveals about him. And that's what we want to look at a little bit today. Not every passage, obviously, but some of the prophecies and just look at what, what that Jesus fulfilled these that we see in the Old Testament. And hopefully this will leave you in, in awe of God's grace and his plan of redemption and make it clear that this has always been his plan since the beginning. Right? It's, we see it throughout the scripture. So we're going to go through, uh, time permitting, about 14 different prophecies. There, there are over 100 uh, prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled, and there's, there's more to come right, in his second coming. So not every prophecy about Christ has been fulfilled because there are more that are going to be fulfilled when he comes the second time, right? Like ruling from David's throne in Israel. Uh, but a lot of it has been fulfilled um, in his first coming. So we're going to focus mostly on the first coming, uh, what he fulfilled. So let's start uh, with number one. Messiah would be born of a virgin. Okay, this is Isaiah 7. Uh, you could turn there. Isaiah 7.14 is the well-known reference. Uh, in Isaiah 7, King Ahaz of Judah and his people were, are fearful as Syria and Israel have teamed up to wage war against Judah. And God sends Isaiah to King Ahaz to encourage him not to fear. And he goes through this thing kind of pretending that he's... He's, uh, he's holier than he is, where God says, ask for a sign, and I'll give it to you. And he kind of goes, oh, I wouldn't presume to ask for a sign. And he's, he's giving this show, and he's actually uh, a very, um, he's, a, he's a wicked king, but he's pretending that he's, he's uh, respectful of God. Um, and then God basically says that he's, the, the invaders are going to fail, and he gives a sign, ultimately, even though the king sort of says, well, I'm not going to presume and ask for a sign. But he gives a sign that points uh, beyond just rescuing Judah now from their enemies, but an ultimate rescuing of Judah in the future. And he even talks about judgment for Ahaz and Judah in the process. So Isaiah 7:14. therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. This is what he has Isaiah say, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring you and upon you and your people, upon your people, and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. He says he's going to bring the king of Assyria. And in that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt, for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. They will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. 
And, and so he goes into what's going to happen. There's going to be briars and thorns. And, uh, basically, judgment's going to come. But then ultimately, that he's going to rescue them. So this prophecy speaks uh, far into the future. It speaks beyond just what's happening right now. He, God already said in, in verse 8 before this, that within 65 years, the northern kingdom of Israel would no longer be a people. And here he says that the lands of the two kings, Syria and Israel, will be in ruin. And then he says he will use Assyria to judge Ahaz and Judah in verses 17 to 18. He says Judah will fall into poverty. That's what eating curds and honey points to in verses 20 and 21. They'll be overrun with briars and thorns, verses 23 to 25. But verse 16 says that all is going to happen before a boy is born of a virgin and before he will be old enough to make moral decisions. So this prophecy is telling of something that begins with Ahaz and Judah and continues far into the future. And it's in that setting that the son will be born of a virgin as a sign. And all of this is a sign that God will one day deliver Judah. And Matthew confirms this. He confirms that Isaiah 7.14 is indeed a prophecy about the Messiah. If you go to Matthew 1, verse 18, then he applies this to Jesus. And by the way, if you're looking for prophecies that Jesus fulfills, Matthew's a great place to go because Matthew's written to a Jewish audience to convince the Jews that Jesus is the promised Messiah. So Matthew quotes a whole bunch of Old Testament prophecies uh, about Christ. Uh, so Matthew 1.18 um, to 23. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with the child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being just, a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place, here it is, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So, indeed, Matthew confirms that that was a prophecy about Jesus. Okay? And uh, what does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us, right? Which, which alludes to that he's God dwelling amongst us, right? When he comes as a man, he's also God. He's God with us when he comes into this world. So, um, and then, of course, Mary was a virgin, right, who conceived and had Jesus. So that was the first prophecy. Um, we knew it was known from the Old Testament that Messiah would be born of a virgin. Number two, Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Uh, in fact, if you stay in Matthew and just go to chapter two, the wise men come and they visit Herod, and Herod asks that question: Where will the where will the Christ be born? And they know the answer, and they quote a scripture to him, right? So they know from the Old Testament where the Christ would be born. So let's read Matthew 2, uh, 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there it is, he was born in Bethlehem, of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. 
because he was king and he didn't want another king, right? And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is, so it is written by the prophet, and he quotes Micah 5, 2, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. <clears throat> so they knew where to point him to, um, to, show, to say uh, where he was going to come from, right? And we notice here that he's, they, the question, it says he asked where the Christ was to be born, and then they also, the wise men had said, the one who was born king of the Jews. So, there's the, so he's the Christ, and he's also a king. And we read in that passage from Micah that he would be a ruler, right, who would, who would come from Judah and shepherd his people. So the Christ is a king, right? He's the king. We've already seen that he's a savior. He's a redeemer. So you see all these different words, titles of Jesus, names of Jesus to uh, describe um, different aspects of what he is to do. So number two, Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. That was well known. Number three, Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham. <clears throat> we can begin with the, actually the beginning, Genesis three, fifteen. the curse. This is sometimes called the proto-evangelium, like the, the first gospel, the first hints at the gospel. Genesis three fifteen. <clears throat> Is, and it's kind of a very general statement, a very general promise. But what God's going to do is he's going to narrow it down and make it more and more specific as the Old Testament is written. So Genesis 3.15, after the fall, he says this, I will put enmity between you, he's speaking to the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And... Uh, and so what theologians have recognized here is that we're talking about an ongoing battle between the serpent and his offspring or his seed versus the offspring of the woman. And that ultimately there would be a particular male offspring who would be injured, bruising his heel is the phrase used, but he would crush the serpent's head. In other words, he would be decisively and ultimately and completely victorious. But the big question was, who, who would be this seed, right? And that's not said here at all. So it's a very general promise, but more would be revealed as time went on. In fact, some people believe, um, if you go through the, what, the subsequent uh, chapter, that they might have believed at first Cain was that person. There's some indication in, in, how, in the naming of Cain and, and what it says there that maybe they thought at first Cain was the one who was promised. Obviously, they realized that was not the case. And obviously, it turned out to be a, whole, a very long time before the promised one would come. But, but this doesn't really give a timeline and it doesn't say who it is, right? There's, but there's a, there's a little bit of information given here. Someone will come and will do that. Someone is promised, right? Um, then it starts to get narrowed down, okay? Uh, in Genesis 9, it gets narrowed down to Shem, that this person would be a descendant of Shem, Genesis 9, 26 and 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Uh, this passage points out that blessings would come to the Japhethites through the God of Shem. And the line of Shem is where the Messiah would come from. Um, if you look through, go to Genesis 11, through the genealogy, it goes... 
to Shem. It starts with Shem. These are the generations of Shem. And then it works its way to Terah and then Abram in verse 26. So you see that it's going from Shem to Abram. And then we have a key passage here in Genesis 12 about Abram or Abraham, as he will be known later. God makes, starts revealing the covenant that he's going to make with Abraham. So this is one of the passages that's part of the covenant with Abraham. Genesis 12, 15 and 17 are the main places, but this is the first one. Genesis 12, right after this genealogy that, that talks about Abram, God says this to Abram. Genesis 12, 1. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then, by the way, in Genesis 17, when God renames Abram Abraham, he adds that kings will come from Abram's line. He says that kings shall come from you. So that's... That's pointing to some other things that are going to happen in the future. But in particular, I want to note the last statement of Genesis 12, 3, where God says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Abraham, or through Abraham's line, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, and this refers to the Messiah. Uh, turn to Galatians 3, 8, and let's look at what Paul says there. Paul says in Galatians 3.8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So he's equating in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed with the preaching of the gospel to Abraham. So in other words, that statement is the gospel. It's, it's, it's the gospel. He's saying that one in Abraham's line is going to bless all the nations. One is going to come. The Messiah, is what Paul is telling us, is that one. He came. Well, how did he bless all the nations? So he wasn't just going to bless the Jews and, the, and Abraham's blood descendants, but what does it mean that he's going to bless all the nations? What does the Messiah do? He brings salvation to all peoples, right? Any who would believe. Right? Not just the Jews, but all the nations. So he's blessing all, all the peoples of the world, any nation, right? any who would believe in him. Not everybody's going to be saved, of course. It's only those who believe, but from any, any nation. So these blessings go far beyond just Abraham's line there. But by faith, anyone can be saved from anywhere. Paul continues in verse 16 of Galatians 3. He says, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. So we see now then that the Christ was to come from Abraham's line, right? That's Genesis 12, when, when God says, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's talking about the Christ coming from Abraham's line. So we've gone from the very general Genesis 3.15, someone's going to come and crush the head of the serpent, now we've gone from, the, from Shem to Abraham. So he's going to be a descendant of Abraham. Um, we're, at, we're at that point. And then if you notice in Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, that's one of the first things Matthew establishes. 
He actually makes uh, emphasis there, you'll notice. In Matthew 1.1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, not that David was the son of Abraham, but he's making the point that Jesus is a descendant of David and Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. Right? And those are very important because Abraham and David are the ones that God made the covenants with. So you have the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. Jesus is the one who's going to bring those covenants to fulfillment. So Jesus is a son of David. He's also a son of Abraham, uh, Genesis 1.1 tells us. Oh, sorry, Matthew 1.1 tells us. But the promise is going to get narrower. So we're up to a descendant of Abraham now. So let's go to point number four. Messiah would be from the tribe of Judah. So it's going to narrow down to Judah. Okay, in the interest of time, I'm not going to read the next couple of verses, but I'll just tell you what they are. Uh, first, God continues the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham's son Isaac. That's Genesis 26. So the promises are passing down to Isaac. So it's going to be someone from Isaac's descendants. And then he passes it down to Jacob, not Esau. So it's going to go, and now the Messiah is going to come from Jacob's line. Okay, that's Genesis 35. He's, he's uh, carrying those Abrahamic promises down uh, to the next generations. Jacob has then 12 sons, right? That's how we get the tribes of Israel. And God then narrows the promise to Judah, right? To Judah, the fourth son, And at the end of Jacob's life, he prophesies over Jacob's sons in Genesis 49. So let's look at that. And this is going to basically tell us that the Messiah is going to come from Judah, the tribe of Judah, not um, any of the other tribes. So it's going to narrow down again where he's going to come from. Genesis 49, starting in verse 9. Actually, that's 8. Verse 8, starting in verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. So he's going to be, the the other tribes are going to bow down. Judah's going to be the the preeminent um, tribe. Judah, and then they'll defeat their enemies. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? He's going to be fearsome. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, or some readings say until Shiloh comes. Uh, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So the Nazbi and the legacy of until Shiloh comes. Um, and there's some debate about that particular part. Uh, The ESV says, until tribute comes to him in verse 10 there. Um, Other translations say, until Shiloh comes. Uh, But if you go through, there's a couple different ideas of what that means. Some people can think that's a name for Jesus. But probably the best case would be made that it's actually not a name, but it's a word that means basically to whom it belongs. It means to whom it belongs. Um, so it explains that uh, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until, until comes the one to whom it belongs. That's basically what it's saying. But if you, if you believe the other arguments, it amounts to the same thing. If you believe Shiloh is the name for Jesus, he is the one to whom it belongs. So either way, the point is this is talking about the Messiah coming, the one to whom the scepter belongs. And um, so it's saying that Judah is going to be where the rulers come from. 
till the ultimate one who comes, who, to whom the scepter belongs and to whom all people are going to be obedient ultimately. All nations will obey uh, the Son. Uh, pastor and commentator uh, R. Kent Hughes writes, ancient Jewish and Christian commentators almost uniformly have interpreted this verse as messianic, though until the tri- tribute comes to him is variously rendered. While there is no consensus as to what the exact wording should be, there is a unified understanding that the scepter and the ruler's staff are symbolic of a kingship that would remain with Judah until the Messiah comes. As the 4th century AD Jewish Targum Onkelos had it, until Messiah comes, whose is the kingdom, and him shall the nations obey. So however you take that, that particular phrase there, whether it's Shiloh comes or the one to whom the scepter belongs, comes. It's talking about the Messiah. Uh, notice this blessing tells us a couple important things. From this passage, we see Judah will have authority over the other tribes. Judah will be mighty, pictured as a lion here. Rightful rule or kingship will come from Judah. The one to whom rule belongs will therefore come from Judah. And his reign will not only be over Israel, but over all the peoples. As Greg Harris summarizes in his book, The King and His Glory, whoever the Messiah is, he must give clear documentation of his lineage. It must be traced back to the tribe of Judah. And indeed, you go to the genealogies of Jesus, and you will see Matthew 1, Luke 3, you will see that he's from the tribe of Judah. And Revelation 5.5 calls him the Lion of Judah. Uh, Revelation 5, 5, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Remember, they couldn't find anyone who's worthy, who can open it. Well, the lamb, right? God, the son of God, Jesus, and it calls him the lion of the tribe of Judah. That is Christ. So all that to say, we've narrowed down then that Messiah has to come from Judah. Right? So not only from Abraham, but he's going to be from the tribe of Judah. Indeed, Jesus meets that qualification. All right, the next one. Um, this is a harder one. And I, I'm not going to spend too much time because this one, take, you can get very deep down a rabbit hole on this one. But just uh, number five, Messiah would come out of Egypt. Uh, you'll remember when King Balak of Moab hires Balaam to curse Israel, that Balaam's only able to bless Israel. And in his third oracle, turn to Numbers 24, he repeatedly can only bless Israel, even though the king wants to pay him to curse Israel. God doesn't allow him to do that. And that's not to say that this Balaam's curse would have done anything, but God's making it very clear that he's blessing Israel, and Israel has a special place by not even allowing this prophet to do that, not even to allow him to say anything against Israel. Um, So Numbers 24, 7, uh, water shall flow from his buckets and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. And then if you look down at 11, uh, you have this lion imagery again. He crouched, he lay down like a lion and like a lioness. Who will rouse him up? So you're seeing uh, that it's referring back to that Genesis 49 that we looked at about a lion and a lioness. And then you see the Abrahamic covenant. Blessed are those who bless you, cursed are those who curse you. So you see language there from the Abrahamic promises. 
Um, so he prophesies here, Balaam does, of a king who will be higher than Agag, which this isn't the Agag that uh, Samuel hacked to pieces because this was way before that. So the thought is that that's probably uh, a title, either a common name or a title, kind of like how Pharaoh, there's multiple Pharaohs, that was a title that was carried along. So it's, it's, it's a King Agag who apparently was a, a well-known king. They'll be mightier than that. And then uh, some argue here that the context suggests that this probably refers to the king, to the Messiah here, not Israel. So the MacArthur Study Bible points out that the hymn in verse 8 is singular, and the closest reference in verse 7 is talking about the king. So it's better to see and understand verses 8 and 9 as referring to Israel's king, not Israel itself. Some don't agree with that, but if you, if you take that understanding, then it's saying that God will bring the king out of Egypt. The future king, the Messiah, will come from come out of Egypt, and then this that would go in line with Hosea eleven, which says, "When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son." Which Matthew links to Jesus in Matthew two, thirteen to fifteen. Now that's I said this is controversial because Hosea eleven one is a very controversial passage because. It seems to be speaking about Israel and the exodus out of Egypt, and then Matthew applies it to Jesus. So there's a whole lot of debate and writing about, would that have been understood as about Jesus? Is there a somehow a meaning that, the, that Matthew sees that wasn't there? And we hesitate on that one because we usually argue that the passages have one meaning, one single meaning, which is what the original audience would have understood. Um, so there's a lot of debate about that. And there's, I think uh, Abner Chow makes a good case that what Matthew interprets is what Hosea is talking about. But it's well beyond the scope of what we can do today to go into that. So just to let you know that it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of discussion and uh, controversy about that. But what it usually comes down to is either if you side with Abner Chow... You're going, you would argue that, it, that every passage has a single meaning and Matthew's meaning is the meaning that was intended by Hosea, but you have to look at the whole context of Hosea. And it's not just talking about the exodus from Egypt, it's talking about a coming Messiah in Hosea who's going to uh, save his people again. And so he says that's in line with it. There are others who would say that wasn't what the original readers would have understood, but there is a second meaning, a deeper meaning, and that's what Matthew was pointing to. And if most, and, you know, the danger of that is that, that if you believe in second meanings, you have to be very careful. Who decides what's a second meaning, right? You, if you read a passage, are we, are we qualified to decide, oh, there's a second deeper meaning here? And if we, if we start looking for that, that gets very dangerous because you could very easily start allegorizing everything and coming up with these meanings that aren't really there. Um, so if you believe in that, if you believe it's a second meaning, then uh, I would caution that you would probably make that argument based on that it's an inspired author of the New Testament who did that. And that we ourselves would not want to do that. Look for deeper meanings that aren't stated in the scripture. So uh, one of those two views, Robert Thomas is a guy who used to be at Master Seminary, who writes a lot about hermeneutics and stuff. He happened to believe in the second deeper meaning. 
but he's only going to go off of that because it's an inspired author of the New Testament who's doing that. And like I said, Abner Chow, who's now the, um, what do they call it? Chair, president, president of Massey Seminary would argue the other, that, it, that really it's the same meaning. Uh, but, but that's a big thing. It really goes down to the whole question of how does the New Testament interpret the Old Testament? Lots of books about that. Abner Chow has one. Michael Vlock has one. So it's a huge issue there. But, but the point is that um, what it says in Matthew 2, 13, uh, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. So after Jesus had been born, they go to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. He rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And then Matthew says this, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So he applies Hosea 11.1 to Jesus as speaking of the Messiah. And that fits with Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 24.8 as well. Okay, so the Messiah would come out of Egypt is the next, that's our next conclusion there. Uh, Number six, Messiah would be a prophet like Moses, but greater. So there was an anticipation of a prophet who would be like Moses, but would be greater. And Moses speaks of this in Deuteronomy 18. This is also the passage on how you tell who's a a true prophet from God, because after, after talking about this prophet to come, it talks about how a pro- if a prophet claims to be from God, that everything he says better be true. It better come true. He better have a 100% track record on prophecies. Uh, but at the beginning here, he says that one's going to come like Moses. So uh, Deuteronomy 18, we could start in verse 15. Moses writes this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So notice a couple things here in this description. This one like Moses would be an Israelite, right? Because he's from among you, from your brothers. He would be like Moses and he would speak God's word with authority, right? He, I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command. And those who don't listen, that he will require it of them. Okay, in other words, they'll die. Uh, Being like Moses, it could be expected that he would do great signs and wonders and would be a deliverer of God's people like Moses was. So the Jews were thus anticipating this promised prophet like Moses. Turn to John 6, and you'll see that when Jesus fed the 5,000, they started to realize, hey, this, maybe this is him. This must be him. And they're looking for this prophet. They've been anticipating this promised prophet who would be like Moses. And they start to, they realize that that's Jesus. John 6, 14. When Jesus fed the 5,000, here's what happens. When the people saw the sign that he had done, 
They said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into this world. And then they understood also that he would be king because on the next verse it says, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So they also realized that this prophet would be king. So Because again, it's the Messiah, the prophet, the Messiah, the king. These are all the same person. Early in Jesus' ministry, Philip the Apostle recognized Jesus as the one written about by Moses, which was perhaps referring to this passage. In John 1.45, he says to Nathanael, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So he identified Jesus as the one that Moses wrote about. And then if you go to Acts 3.22, Peter confirms that Jesus is this prophet. Acts 3.22, Moses said, this is uh, Peter speaking, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So he's saying Jesus is the one who was sent. Jesus is the one spoken of by Moses in that passage. He's the prophet that was promised. And then uh, in Acts 7.37, Stephen uh, seems to say the same thing. He says, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. So he's going through and he's, and he's pointing to them about how they've rejected the Messiah. Um, and he goes through all those things and he talks about Moses and God's promise that a prophet would come like Moses. So his implication is that's Jesus. That Jesus is the one who was promised and you rejected him. So, Point six, Messiah would be a prophet like Moses, but greater. He's the one that was promised who would come like Moses. Okay, so hopefully what you're seeing as this is getting narrower and narrower is that it's, it's so obvious that this is Jesus, right? He's the only one who meets these qualifications. It's getting narrower and narrower, and it's like, this is Jesus. Uh, and that's what the New Testament confirms. Uh, number seven, Messiah would be a descendant of David. Okay, so, so far we're down to, we went to Abraham, we went to Judah. Now we're going to be descendant of David. It's going to get narrower again. More would continue to be revealed. By first Samuel, Israel demanded a king. Saul became the king, but he failed to honor God. And so God chose another and he entered into covenant with him. Uh, so he, he chose David and he entered into the Davidic covenant with David, which is in 2 Samuel 7, 8 to 16. I think in the interest of time, we're not going to be able to read through. That's a long passage. So I'll just point you to that and kind of summarize some of the things it says. So 2 Samuel 7, 8 to 16, he, he makes this covenant, these promises to David. And there's a couple things I want to note from it. He promised to make David's name great, which is similar to the promise he made to Abraham. That's verse 9. He promises to provide a place for Israel, which was also promised to Abraham. He promises rest from enemies. He promises uh, offspring or a seed, seed to succeed David. 
He promised that one of those would build a house for God's name, which Solomon did, right? David wasn't allowed to, but Solomon ended up building the temple. And then he says in the end that David's dynasty and kingdom would be established forever. Uh, Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And we see that some some of these promises were continuations of the Abrahamic covenant, but there were additional promises now uh, to the line of David. God is narrowing down uh, his promises of the Messiah again. If you look at what the angel Gabriel said to Mary in Luke 1, turn there with me to Luke 1. Thirty-two. The angel Gabriel tells Mary, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So that's how that's going to be fulfilled. It's going to be fulfilled in Christ. Christ is going to rule from David's throne. And then that's going to be Forever. So that's how David's throne is going to be established forever. It's not going to be David ruling on there. It's not going to be any, you know, other descendants of David. It's, it's talking about the ultimate king, the ultimate descendant of David, who will rule forever. That's Jesus. That's what Gabriel tells Mary. There are many, many more passages about the coming king in David's line. Way too many for us to go over. I've put a few additional ones you could look at there. From Psalm 132, Isaiah 16, Jeremiah 23, and so on. Um, A lot of them there talking about the same thing. One from David's line, right? Um, I'll just read a couple. Uh, Jeremiah 39, they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Um, David was long dead. This is talking about a descendant of David. This is talking about Christ. So the king in David's line. Jeremiah 23 says, I will raise up for David a righteous branch. So a descendant of David. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. So this is the promised ultimate king in David's line. And really, if you go through the Old Testament and you read through Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, you're reading about all these kings. What you see is... In Judges, that Israel needed a king, and then through those, those books that all the kings were failures, ultimately, right? They, none of them were, were the ultimate king because they're all showing that, well, Israel needed a king. Some kings were good kings, but they were all still sinners, right? They all still fell into sin, and most of them were terrible. And so what you're left with is this knowledge that, well, Israel needs a king, but none of these kings are it. None of these kings are, are what we're looking for and waiting for and anticipating because the ultimate one is still to come. And, and he is Christ. He's the perfect one. But all the other ones are inadequate. Um, so again, if you look at the beginning of Matthew, in the genealogy, Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the very first verse, he makes the point that Christ is the son of David and the son of Abraham. So son of David because of that, because he's the one. He's the one that's promised in David's line. You'll notice throughout uh, a lot of the scripture he's called in the New Testament the son of David by many people who are asking him for healing or, and they come to him and one of, the, one of the lines you see is have mercy on us son of David Matthew 9.27 so people are coming to him and they're recognizing he, he must be this one 
He's the son of David that was promised. And they come to him asking for healing. In Matthew 12, after uh, Jesus healed a demon-oppressed demon man, it says all the people, Matthew 12, 23, were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? So again, there's an expectation of this son of David who was going to come. Can this be it? Is he that person? And then Matthew 21, they were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David, right? They're, they're crying out for salvation. Save us, son of David, because they knew that the son of David is the one who would ultimately save them. But again, they had this eye on, oh, he's going to come and crush Israel's enemies, kick Rome out, and, and set up his kingdom. And that wasn't what he came to do the first time he came. He came to die on the cross, right? He came to live a perfect life, die in our place on the cross so that we could be saved from our sins. What they were anticipating is yet to come when he comes back. That's when he's going to do those things. All right, so people knew from the Old Testament that he would be, the Messiah would be a descendant of David. Jesus asks the Pharisees point blank, Matthew 22, 41 and 42, Matthew twenty two forty one. Now the Pharisees were gathered together. Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. So they knew the Christ was to be a descendant of David. Uh, we also saw earlier in Revelation 5, 5, that Jesus is called the root of David. So he's been called the son of David. He's been called a righteous branch. He's been called the root of David. In Isaiah 11, he's called a stump of Jesse, actually a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And Jesse is David's ancestor, right? Two generations before. Uh, he's called a root of Jesse, Isaiah 11.10. A branch from his roots, Isaiah 11.1. 1. And then as we saw in Jeremiah 23, a righteous branch for David. So, he's, so we see he's called these other names that are still expressing his, uh, his being in the line of David. In Romans 15, Paul applies Isaiah 11, 1 to Jesus. He says, and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. So he points in Romans 15, 12, that this root of Jesse that Isaiah spoke of is Christ. And then finally, Revelation 22, 16, Jesus says this. This is almost, this is at your very end of your Bible, close to the last verse. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So he is the one who is the descendant of David. All right, how are we doing so far? I don't know if we're going to make it. <laughs> Number eight. We got, we got still a lot more to get to 14. Uh, this is an important one. Number eight, Messiah would be God. David wrote Psalm 110, which is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And the first verse is the most quoted verse in the New Testament. So turn to Psalm 110. We're doing like sword drills today. <laughs> psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay, well, you might hold your place there and then turn to Matthew 22. Okay, back to the passage we were just looking at where Jesus asks the Pharisees, Who, whose son is the Christ going to be? So if you go back to Matthew 22, 
41. We'll just read a little farther than we did a minute ago. Matthew twenty-two forty-one. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. That's where we stopped. But now keep reading. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So now he quotes Psalm 110. One. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Okay, so a couple things to note what he said. First, he says that Psalm 110 is about the Christ, right? Because he asked them about the Christ, whose son is he? And then he quotes Psalm 110. So Jesus says Psalm 110 is about the Christ. He says that he is the son of David. Verse 45 in Matthew 22, Jesus says, The Christ is going to be the son of David, meaning he has to be in David's line, which we already established. And we know that Jesus is in David's line. But then in that psalm, he is exalted to God's right hand, right? It says that. Sit at my right hand. That's what God says to this one. So the Lord says to David's Lord, which is the Messiah, who who is also a descendant, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, your footstool. So he's exalting this one. God is exalting him to his right hand, a place recognized by Jews to be his designation of co-equal rank and authority. And then third, David calls this one Lord, my Lord. So what is Jesus' point? His point is that the Messiah will not only be a son of David, a man, but he will also be God. David would not refer to any normal human descendant of his as Lord, nor would any such person be exalted to God's right hand. The conclusion is that the Old Testament here teaches that the Messiah would not only be a man in David's line, but he would also be God. The author of Hebrews applies this verse to Christ. Hebrews 1.13, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? We know that the Messiah would in fact be the Son of God, right? John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then Psalm 2 also speaks of the Son of God. Psalm 2, another often quoted psalm in the New Testament. Uh, Psalm 2.7, I will tell of the decree The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Okay, and this is talking about God's anointed, right? His chosen one, the king that he has installed, right? You know know this one, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then it says, he who sits in the heavens, verse four, laughs. uh, Verse six, as for me, I have set my king on Zion. He's already set his king, and then that's the context. He says, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And this is applied in Hebrews to Jesus. Hebrews 1, 5, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Hebrews 5, 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
The disciples also indicated that this verse was speaking of Christ. In Acts 4, 25 to 27, um, after being warned not to preach Christ, they, they come out and uh, they lift their voices, they praise God, they say, uh, and then they quote, they say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by Holy Spirit, now they quote from the beginning of Psalm 2, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Verse 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. So they're identifying that the one who is in that psalm, the one who God chose and anointed, is Jesus. Paul also in Acts 13. Paul says, 13.32 we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, to us their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then he links this, this begotten part, that, that we could have a whole big long discussion about what exactly that means, but he links this to the, to the resurrection. Um, commentator Homer Kent notes, the term begotten must not have to do with origination or birth, but rather public declaration, acknowledgement, or inauguration. And he explains that in connection with Romans 1.4, the idea seems clear that the one who was always the divine son was openly declared or demonstrated to be such by the culminating events of resurrection and subsequent exaltation. Of course, Christ was previously acknowledged as son by the father at, the, at his baptism and the transfiguration. But the crowning event was the resurrection and its aftermath. So we're not talking about Jesus being created or anything like that. We're talking about not talking about Jesus becoming the Son at that point because that's that was eternity past. That's there's not like this time where oh yeah now Jesus has become the Son, but this is when he's being he's being uh, inaugurated. He's being uh, declared uh, after the resurrection. John Owen notes further that it is certain that the Jews always applied this Psalm to the Messiah which they do to this day. So even the Jews acknowledge that Psalm 2 is about the Messiah, but they deny that it's Christ. So we see then from the Old Testament that the Messiah would, also, would be God. He would be a descendant of David is how far we've gotten in the line, but he'd also be God. There are some other places you might look additionally, if you would like. Um, there's some question about Proverbs 30, verse 4. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. So some people believe that that's talking about that God has a son. And there are others who argue that they, don't, they, they think it's either Israel or, or the wise person in the context of what, this, what a son is often in Proverbs. Uh, beyond that, you can do a study on the, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, right? The angel of the Lord, who, who you'll find that he is God. And you'll also find that, well, the father speaks to him and the father sends him. Um, so you'll see that he's God, but he's distinct. So we would argue that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is the son before he had come as Christ. So you also see that there's, there's a son, there's the son in the Old Testament. Okay. Um, next one. I'm going to kind of go quickly through this one. 
Uh, Messiah would come to his people on a donkey. Zechariah 9.9 is the prophecy. Your king is coming to your righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? And Matthew 21 says this was fulfilled when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on the donkey. Um, So you'll see... um, Verse 4 in Matthew 21, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. So, so it's confirmed by Matthew that Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey was a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. 9. Uh, number 10, Messiah would be rejected by his people. I think we'll go quickly through this one as well, but I mean, you, you, we could go to Isaiah 53 which I think pretty soon the 9 a.m. class is going to be getting to Isaiah 53. I don't know if Art was doing a Christmas-themed message for a little bit this end of the year, but I know he was at Isaiah 51 last week. So he'll probably be getting into Isaiah 53 soon. But uh, Isaiah talks about a suffering servant or the Lord's servant uh, who he would send. And Isaiah 53 and the the kind of the end of 52 uh, talks about this servant and how he's going to suffer and you know, you read through this, and it's, it's undeniable that this is talking about Christ. But uh, as we go through, it's talking about how, he, he, among other things, he's going to suffer and die for, for the people's sins, but he's also going to be rejected. So we could look at Isaiah 53. Three, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And then... Um, you know, you can, you obviously, he got rejected, uh, especially um, by, the, by the Jews, who as, who as a whole have still not uh, accepted him. And some people believe that Isaiah 53, because it's actually uh, written in past tense, some people believe Isaiah 53 is actually like a, like a prayer that Israel's going to pray when they come to, come to accept him as their savior. It's like a prayer of repentance. Some people believe that. Um, but definitely, it's, it's speaking of what's going to happen to this one called the servant, who is Jesus. So let's go to the next point then, which is about that. Uh, Messiah would suffer greatly and die on a cross. In Acts 3.18, Peter says, What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So Peter says, the prophet said that the Christ would suffer. We see this in Isaiah especially. Um, Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Isaiah 52, 14. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And so we, we kind of would tie that in with the scourging and the beating that Jesus went through. This says that he was hardly even recognizable as a human after it. That's how greatly he suffered. And then Isaiah 53, we could look at verse 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, he was killed stricken for the transgression of my people. So Jesus was beaten, he was mocked, he was scourged, and then he was murdered. And uh, all those passages that I gave you are just talking, or the 
accounts in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about that. Um, being slapped, being spit in the face, having the crown of thorns, being scourged, and then ultimately being crucified. And it's interesting how sometimes, you know, you read in the, in the Bible and it just says, like, they crucified him. <laughs> and it's like, it, for us, we don't have as much of an idea, unless you've really looked into that, of what, what that is, where they scourged him, right? Or they scourged or they crucified. But, you know, to people of those times, they would have understood much more graphically what that means. And for us, sometimes we could just read through and we don't, you know, unless you've looked at that, you, you, you don't, may not realize how horrible uh, that is. Uh, the Old Testament also prophesied that he would be crucified. Uh, we look at F- Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So he was pierced for our transgressions, Isaiah 53, 5. And then Psalm 22 seems to speak of a crucifixion as well, penned by David. Psalm twenty-two, fourteen to 18. And Jesus shows that he's fulfilling this. He points to this Psalm 22 because he says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's the opening line in Psalm 22. Um, so go to Psalm twenty-two, fourteen. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot's hood and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of the earth. And uh, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Psalm 22, uh, 14 to 18. So Jesus quotes from the first verse. And then um, Zechariah uh, points out, Jesus also writes of him whom they have pierced in Zechariah twelve ten. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So them coming to realize who he is in mourning. And then John points in John 19 to, to this scripture. So he points out that, that what happened to Jesus is in fulfillment of this scripture. John nineteen thirty two. <clears throat> so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. That you also may believe, for these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. That's, uh, that's another scripture that this fulfills. Uh, that's about the, um, about the Passover lamb. That in the Passover, which Christ is the ultimate Passover lamb, right? In the Passover, you were, they were to take an unblemished lamb, and they were not to break any of its bones. And then Jesus, as the ultimate Passover lamb, God ensured he never broke, none of his bones were ever broken because he was that perfect sacrifice. And then again, it says, uh, 37, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. That's the Zechariah uh, 12, 
10 passage. Okay, so the rest of those verses there are, talk, are uh, referring to the Passover lamb, if you want to look at that. All right, I'm going to have to wrap it up. So just a couple things left then. Uh, the next one is that the Messiah would be buried with the rich. Isaiah 53, 9. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. So he was killed with the wicked, with thieves, and it was their intention that he would be buried in a disgraceful way. But you'll remember that Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body, and he took Christ's body and he buried him in his tomb. And uh, Matthew twenty-seven fifty-seven says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And so he was buried with the rich, ultimately, even though they intended to disgrace him with the wicked. So I think that brings us to the last one, right? Messiah would be resurrected. In Luke 24, 46... Jesus says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So he said it was written that he would suffer and he would rise from the dead. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.4 said that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So they're both saying that the scriptures said that he would be resurrected. Okay, and we see this in Psalm 16. There's one place. Psalm 16, 8 to 10. This is another difficult passage because it's written by David. And so you come back to that question, is this... A double meaning? Was there a meaning for David that people would have understood? And now the New Testament writers are saying this is also talking about Christ? Or is this written by David, but he's, he's seen ahead that this is also about the Messiah? So uh, Psalm 16, 8. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy ones see corruption. And so there's a hope here from David about resurrection. And uh, as, as one article titled, The Resurrection, is it according to the scriptures, writes, David's hope is that he would not be left in the realm of the dead. He doesn't merely want to be saved from an immediate physical danger, but to overcome death. In other words, David envisioned resurrection. And this article argues that God hears David's prayer because he set because God set apart the holy ones for himself, and David is one of those who benefits from God's actions for them. David's resurrection is guaranteed by God's raising of his holy one, the Messiah. So, so this, this person is arguing that it's one meaning from the beginning, and that David's hope is built on the promise that is to the ultimate holy one. And because of that resurrection of the ultimate holy one, any other who are in Christ will ultimately be resurrected, and that that's the hope that David had. Um, in any event, uh, whichever way you view that, in Acts 2, Peter takes this psalm and he applies it to Christ. Acts 2.24, let's turn there. Acts 
Acts 2.24 says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and now he reads that part. He quotes that passage from Psalm 16. He says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So Psalm 16 points to the resurrection. Uh, many see in Psalm 22 as well. So many see in, the, in 12 to 21 in Psalm 22, the, the death, the crucifixion. And then in the end, 22 to 31, a description of life after death. Um, there's also uh, Isaiah 53.10, which says, let's go back there. Isaiah 53.10. Isaiah 53.10 says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. This is Christ, the servant. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering of guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And so uh, MacArthur Study Bible notes, to see his offspring, the servant must rise from the dead. Another commentator notes that these are offspring in a spiritual sense, and thus his seed are elsewhere called the sons of God. Uh, and other commentators, the reference here is to the people redeemed by him. That's what's meant by offspring. Those whom he saves, those who are in him. Uh, John Calvin writes, Isaiah means that the death of Christ not only can be no hindrance to his having a seed, but will be the cause of his having offspring. That is because by quickening the dead, he will procure a people for himself. By rising from the dead, by raising the dead, he will, procure, he will first rise and then he will raise others in him. He will procure a people for himself whom he will afterwards multiply more and more. So those are his offspring. He wouldn't see these offspring if he were not resurrected, nor would his days be prolonged, nor could he fulfill the Davidic covenant. So he had to be uh, raised from the dead as well. All right, so we made it through. Um, there, there's many more. You know, there are many, many more prophecies you could go through. There are well over 100 prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. We've just looked at some of them. And you know, we, rather than doing a verse by verse, we kind of went through what do we know about the Messiah? Right? What were we anticipating? Um, so that you can see who that had to be. There was no, it had to be. Jesus has to be. right? There's no other option. He is the one. And we see it from the Old Testament scriptures. Um, many of these were fulfilled in his first coming. There are others that have not yet. And so that's a question you could think about. You know, what, what prophecies are there that have yet to be fulfilled um, that he's going to fulfill at his second coming? Because any, any prophecies that have been made, they're going to be fulfilled, right? God keeps his promises. He's faithful. So anything that hasn't been done will still yet be done. And uh, you know, among those would be restoring Israel, crushing Israel's enemies, ruling from the Davidic throne, Judging the wicked, right? There's much yet that he's going to do when he comes back. All right. Well, I hope this has been helpful. Uh, I'm going to close this in prayer. If you have any questions, I'll stick around. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for Jesus. Uh, we thank you for the Christ, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior, the, 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 the branch of David, Lord, the, the root of Jesse, 
Uh, all these names, Lord, all these things as we've gone through the scriptures today, and we've seen your plan uh, unfold. We've seen your plan, which was very broad at first, start to get more and more clear as you revealed more and more through your prophets, Lord. What an amazing thing to behold in your word. And Lord, we pray that this would just uh, help us to to just uh, be in awe of, of you and your plan, Lord, of your grace that was poured out in Christ, that we would just love you more and appreciate what he's done, Lord, that we would uh, just be equipped for any that would argue uh, that, that somehow there's some other Messiah that we're waiting for. No, it's Jesus. There is no other who could fit this. And uh, we see that today. And there are yet many others, other uh, Prophecies to be fulfilled, Lord. We pray, come, Lord Jesus, as he, we know he's going to come and fulfill those. So, Lord, we thank you. We pray that you would help us to, to go out today with great joy in our hearts and thanksgiving and just uh, proclaiming Christ. We thank you in his name. Amen.